work throughout the last several months. Um, today we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5. So open up to Daniel chapter 5 this morning. And we find ourselves in a new week, a new chapter, and a new king. In fact, yes, it's a new king. If you were to read this fast, you'd be like, whoa, wait, where's King Nebuchadnezzar? Because it doesn't really give you any transitionary chapter. It's just all of a sudden he's there. Daniel chapter 5 is your turning. We're going to see the writing on the wall and the fall of an empire. You see, all lives are weighed and balanced. And all worldly kingdoms, earthly kingdoms will fall, but God's kingdom will prosper forever. So again, as we start today and as you're turning, we're going to see that King Nebuchadnezzar is gone. There's a new king in the nation, a new king in the kingdom, and a new king's son. In fact, many years have passed. They estimate about 20 years roughly have passed, and we're in the year of uh, around 539 BC. That is a long time ago. Now note, the king that we're going to be reading about today has a very similar name to the king's name for Daniel. But it is different. We're talking about a different person. The king we're talking about today is King Belshazzar or Belshazzar. But Daniel's given name was Belteshazzar or Belteshazzar. Notice that little difference, the T-E there, because we're talking about two different people, one devoted to one true God, one devoted to himself and false gods. One is a king. One is a servant to the one true king. Daniel, and the earthly king, Belshazzar. So what we're going to see is a new king ruling. And let me give you some background. There have been many coups, assassinations, or maybe not many, but a couple, and new rulers ran by two kings, the dad, King Nabonidus, and his son, Belshazzar, whom is believed to be the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar is said to have been, I'm sorry, King Nabonidus, is said to have often been gone from the kingdom, whether it be on conquest or battles or just touring his his nations that he controlled. He was said to often be gone, and in place of him would be ringing his son, King Belshazzar, or Belshazzar. There's two different ways of pronouncing that, so forgive me if I get it mixed up, but we're going to understand it both ways. This chapter is going to show us the fall of the Babylonian empire. It's going to show us the writing on the wall. We're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar's first dream come to be, the first dream where he saw this great statue, this great image with the gold head, and the gold head then falls to a new empire, and that's what we're going to see today, because all earthly lives and kingdoms are weighed and balanced and divided based upon your faith in God, glorifying him and his will. So we must follow him, And that's where you're going to see is this king would not follow him, would not acknowledge him. Even King Nebuchadnezzar in his last days recognized the most high God as the one true God. Even King Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself and finally looked up. But this new king will not do that despite all of his knowledge. And we read, let's start with verse one and we'll stop a lot to talk. Verse one says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, it's greatly believed that the enemy is knocking on the walls. The enemy is at their gates. The enemy is pounding away. And this kingdom is at war, actively at war. 
And yet during this time, King Belshazzar throws a feast, a party for a thousand. Now, it wasn't just any feast. It wasn't a feast just for his family, his friends, a few. We're told that detail is for a thousand. Now, whether it was an exact number or just trying to, for trying to get us to see it was a lot of people, either way, what we see is this was not customary. It was not normal, and it was not right. It was stupid. It was foolish. It was naive of him to throw a party, a great feast, when the enemy is at the door as they were. Now, the timing, it's not customary. You should be at war with your fellow soldiers, not throwing a feast. Um, the women that were there, as we'll see, the drunkenness and what he would use at this party to try and make his party better, as Pastor Chuck said. But here's something we know, if you're taking notes. We know that sinful living leads to foolish living. Sinful living leads to foolish living. And sinful and foolish living leads to the downfall of your lives and your earthly kingdoms. Let me say the last part again. Sinful living leads to the downfall of your earthly lives and kingdoms. The Medes and Persians were about to conquer Babylon. Historical documents tell us that this would be the downfall of Babylon. And yet, instead of battling with his fellow soldiers, they threw a feast. And there's a few different ideas on why. So before we read on, let me give you this. this. Either one, maybe it was one last raw, one last selfish pleasure on their part. And they thought, well, we're about to go down anyway, so let's go down drinking and being merry and giving ourselves temporary gratification, temporary pleasures. Number two, maybe it wasn't so much to give themselves to temporary desires, but again, they knew they were about to go down. So instead of going down fighting, they were going to take their mind off things. They were going to party and ignore what was happening beyond their gates. Or number three, and this is kind of what I think and what a lot of commentators believe as well, is we already know from Scripture this king is prideful. Babylon is prideful. I think this king had no worries whatsoever. He had pride and he had confidence that his walls would hold back any army. His walls would hold back God himself and God's plan that was going to unfold. In fact, Let's read some details here. It's been said that the walls of Babylon, and and this could be greatly exaggerated, but there's also truth to it, the outer walls could have been as long as 56 miles long. These walls could have been up to 80 feet thick, 300 feet high. Their outer walls could have had up to 250 guard towers. The city gates were made of bronze. A system of inner and outer walls and moats made the city very secure. And then if all of this wasn't enough, they also had a canal from the Euphrates River going straight through their kingdom so that they had water supply, everlasting water supply. They had food. They had years and years of supplies. All they needed was to keep their gates closed and their walls up long enough for this this battle to go on and for them to give up. But historical documents tell us that that is actually how this kingdom fell. This kingdom fell not because the walls broke, but because the Medes and the Persians were were smart enough to think to divert, reroute the river from the kingdom. 
And they didn't wait, they didn't divert it and wait for them to starve, no food, no water from the river. No, they rerouted the water supply so that they could sneak in through that canal underneath the walls while nobody was watching and the kingdom would have been overthrown with little effort. Which brings me to another point for your notes. No walls can prevent God's preordained plans from happening. No walls can hold God back. If it is God's will, it's going to happen. And that's why we need to follow God's will and live in accordance to his purposes. It's interesting to also think how this party reflects our society's way of living too. You see, society often wants to drink away, party away their problems. We just want to act like there is no problem. We want to act like these problems don't exist. We want to just act like, oh, the problems would just go away instead of acknowledging the problems and dealing with the problems in a godly way. We want to take in all the worldly pleasures, the temporary gratifications or temporary desires of this world instead of living for the eternal pleasures of God's kingdom. This king's foolishness would lead to his demise. And it wasn't just the foolishness of the party. It wasn't the foolishness of the drunkenness. It wasn't the foolishness of the many ladies. It wasn't the foolishness of the timing. It's the foolishness of what he would include in this party. You see, God himself does not wish for us to live a life without pleasure, without party, but we should do it in a way which honors and glorifies him. This king, though, he would, get, he would drink wine, party, get drunk, and make the biggest mistake of his life. He would go too far. He would mock God, and God could not let this pass. So let's read on. Verse 2, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine... And I I tend to think he hadn't just tasted a first drop here. He tasted it. He realized it's good. He's giving in to its effects. He's getting drunk. He commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised. Notice who they praised, not the most high God, not the one true God, not the God of Daniel. They're using these holy objects from Jerusalem, and they're praising the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They're praising their own idols. The king's pride and foolishness went too far, and God sees his sinful actions. God sees our sinful actions, and God acts. You see, as one commentator said, it was more than the powers of heaven could quietly endure. The moment of doom has come. The most high God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. But even with the God of compassion, there must come a day of judgment. Not one, not only did the king lose his self-control and do foolish, stupid things with drinking and with many wives and concubines and setting a bad example for his followers, but he would mock the one true and living God. Reading on, we see what God would do. Verse five, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. 
His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Now, what you're seeing here, I don't think is just some man like Daniel that walks in with a marker and starts writing on the chalkboard. I think you're seeing a real supernatural event. You're seeing the, you're seeing the fingers of God writing upon the wall. And the king was scared. He was terrified at what he saw. In fact, given his pride, this might have been the first time he was ever, ever truly terrified to this degree. In fact, it says he was so scared as these hands wrote that the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. In fact, some translations make it appear and some commentators believe he might have been so scared that he lost control of his bowels. Now that is a scary moment. He was so scared that, as David Platt said, he had been confronted with his sin by our holy and omnipotent God, and he rightly trembles. Kind of brings into thought our own lives. We should tremble when we're confronted with our own sins. We should tremble at the thought of displeasing our holy, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God because he does see our sin and it does displease him. So this king is scared. He sees the hand of God writing before him, the very hand that wrote the Ten Commandments, the very hand that would, the very hand that would end up casting out demons and performing miracles and leading the people. This is the same hand that would write this on the wall. Pastor David Guzik said, God can and sometimes does communicate to man in unexpected and even shocking ways. Here a hand mysteriously, mysteriously appears and writes on the wall. I ask you to think about yourself. What would you be thinking? I remember as a kid watching the Adams Family, and I'm not recommending that movie, but you see this hand just walking around on the ground can you imagine that hand just all of a sudden appearing and writing on a wall and you realize, okay, something weird is going on here and there's no Ghostbusters to call. In fact, the teen, the, the, this king would go on to call somebody else. Verse 7, he says, The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. Remember, this is many years past Nebuchadnezzar and there's a new ruler, new wise men, and Daniel was probably aged, semi-retired, and he's forgetting about Daniel. Or maybe he's just calling upon the enchanters and the other wise men because they're the ones at the party. I don't know, but let's read. He says, The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." This was a huge honor. The king was so worried, so scared about this handwriting on the wall that he's offering them to rule the kingdom with him, to be a third king, to be clothed in royalty of purple and to have the gold chain around their neck. It's funny though, because none of that mattered because the kingdom was about to fall anyways. Verse eight says, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king's interpretation. This is because only one with the indwelling of God's spirit could decipher this writing. They needed Daniel. Just as King Nebuchadnezzar needed Daniel. Because only a man of God can interpret the word of God. 
Only a man of God can interpret the word of God. That's why so often we find ourselves in arguments and arguments and debating the word of God with people, and, and you're pulling your hair out thinking, I, why can't they understand? Because they have not yet surrendered to God for him to give them the understanding. Only the spirit of God can bring them that understanding. The king was more scared now than ever. As he says in verse 9, Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. He had gone from being a a great drunken fool to a great alert fool. He is very alert now, and he wants to know the answers. You know, it's interesting, though, because from what we read, it sounds like Daniel walked in and just immediately knew what was happening. He immediately knew what the interpretation was. Let's read verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. Now, this is most likely not the wife of King Belshazzar, because she obviously remembered the Daniel. She remembered his great faith, his integrity, his gifts. It's believed that she was the grandfather to Belshazzar, or possibly his father's wife. But let's read on. The queen declared. This, this queen, I, I don't think, was in the banquet, in the feast. She, was, she came in, and she declared, O king, live forever. She's giving him the respect. And she goes on, let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change, because I've got the answer. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. Wow, what a great reputation to have. What great integrity he had. In the king Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, Now, this is believed to use father just because they didn't have the same wording, but it's believed to be his grandfather. Made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret the dreams. She's kind of giving him a history lesson. Do not forget about this man. There is a man in your kingdom who can interpret this dream. He has proven to be of excellent character, of excellent qualities, of excellent gifts. And she's explaining why. And she says, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret the dreams. He can explain the riddles, solve the problems. They were all found in this man named Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Note, she said, now let Daniel be called. She called Daniel by his real name probably recognizing his great faith and integrity as a man of God and recognizing that he was not a man of their God. So he didn't want to call him by his false name. He wanted to call, she wanted to call him by his true name. Daniel comes in the scene, verse 13, and says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, who the king, my father, brought from Judah. Now, two things are either happening here. Either the king is mocking Daniel. Oh, so you are this king. You, I'm sorry. So you are this Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my, my father, brought from Judah. He's either mocking him or he's giving recognition to him. We can't really tell from the wording, but we can tell by the reputation he had. And it says, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you. That's his reputation. That's the integrity that that he stood for. That's what he's remembered for. 
I have heard of you that the spirit of God's is in you. Can people living our life say the same thing about us? Patrick, oh, it's Pastor Patrick, I've heard of you. You're the one who the living God lives inside of. You're the one who can interpret the word of God. You're the one who can tell me how to get everlasting life. You're the, way who can, the one who can tell me how to live the right way. Can people tell, say that about you? He goes on and says, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. I tend to think most time people think, oh, and that foolishness is found in you, not that everlasting, excellent wisdom are found in you. What a great, great recognition Daniel has here. But it does make you wonder, why didn't the king call upon Daniel first? Again, maybe it's because he wanted to call upon the ones who are present. Maybe it's because Daniel was semi-retired and forgotten. Maybe it's because they had too much alcohol to drink and impaired their judgment, their thinking. Don't get drunk, people. <laughs> but he reads, on, we go on. And I do want to say, I think it's great, though, because I think this shows the king, all of your people have been seen as foolish. You've called upon all your wise men. You've called upon yourself, and they couldn't tell you the interpretation of the writing on the wall because they're not of God. And now he comes to a point where he recognizes, I need a man of God to show me the word of God. The world today needs that same thing. They need men and women of God to show them the word of God and to show them the truth found in it. He was brought down to a very low to recognize, I am hopeless without you, Daniel, interpreting this for me. He knew this had amazing, an amazing, powerful message. And he goes on in verse 15. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, notice his answer here. He says, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Now, I don't think he was just trying to be blunt or harsh or rude or dis disrespectful to the king. I think it's because he knew none of this mattered. He didn't care about these temporary treasures. He only cared about his eternal treasure. And none of this matters because I think the moment he walked in the room, he saw the writing on the wall, and he knew that kingdom was about to fall. What good would it do for him to have all of this? I also think if he was being disrespectful, it's because he recognized, look, king, your days are over. You, you knew better. You knew the truth. Your grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar, made a public decree which just doesn't go away. You should have known your history and known of the one true God. You should have known not to defile these holy objects for your pride and your purpose. Daniel has bold face and integrity, and he tells the king the truth. And he's going to preach to this king. He's going to give him a history lesson. He's going to tell him of his downfall. But Daniel had, had kind of preached to King Nebuchadnezzar, remember? When Daniel preached to King Nebuchadnezzar, it was pleading with him, please recognize the Most High God. Please 
But Daniel's not doing this with King Belshazzar to get him to repent. Daniel knows his day is too, it's, it's too late. Your day is done. And he's, he's proclaiming God's judgment upon him. This king had not glorified the true God, and every creature is obligated to give glory to their creator. As one pastor said, the breast of the creature should praise the creator. But Belshazzar blasphemed God with his breath. In fact, not only should our breath should praise the creator, but our actions and ways should also praise the creator as well. And that quote goes on. It says, the breast of the creature should praise the creator, but Belshazzar blasphemed God with his breath. The ways of the creature should glorify the creator, but Belshazzar used his ways to mock and offend God. Our breath should praise God. Our actions, our ways should praise God. Everything owes something to its creator, and this includes us. Daniel continues, and he says, again, this is the history lesson. This is him preaching to the king, Belshazzar. He says, nevertheless, I will read the writing to the kings and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Notice, he tells him, the most high God gave this to him. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom, whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. Remember last chapter. And his dwelling was, was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, again, most likely means grandson, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all this, Daniel is again saying, you knew all of this. You knew the history. You knew what happened in this kingdom. And yet you're not looking up to God. You're looking to yourself in these false idols. He says, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Now, again, that's not meaning looking up to the Lord of heaven. He, looked, he lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Whew. I kind of feel like he just got a spanking. He got... He got he got a punishment there. And Daniel now points out quite bluntly, powerfully, that the king was not just prideful, stupid, or naive, but he's really not in control at all. Notice he says, you are praising the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, but these gods don't see or hear or know. They're not gods. They're made up. They're fake. They're false. But the God in whose hand is your breath, 
the most high God, the one true God, he controls your very living. And whose are all your ways you have not honored. This is where we're at when he now interprets the dream, um, dream, the wall, the writing on the wall. And he says in verse 24 to 30, as we wrap up the scripture, then from his presence, the hand was sent. From the presence of God, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. Minye, Minye, Tekel, Farson. This is interpretation of the matter. Here are the words. And they probably could see the words. They, just, they couldn't understand them. Either it was a different language, it was Hebrew, and they couldn't read Hebrew, or maybe God put a mental block in their minds so that they would just feel foolish and stupid, so that they would recognize that all are foolish and stupid except those who follow after God. But he says, this is interpretation of the matter. Minye, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. This kingdom is being judged. This king is being judged. They're about to see the consequence of their sin. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. It's not a good thing to found wanting. He's not finding himself fulfilled. He's not finding his cup overflowed. He's finding his cup empty, needing filled in want. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command not to kill Daniel, But Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. Didn't really matter much though, did it? Because verse 30 in the end, that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So now as we Wrap up the scripture. Let's have some summary here. The king was told that God had numbered the days of his kingdom, Minye. His life was numbered and weighed and found wanting. It fell short. He was a lightweight. And that was not good in this case to be a lightweight. You and me, we might want to be a lightweight. We might want to lose a little weight. We might want to take down our weight class and box in this world a little more fit. But no, he was found wanting. And it's recorded through history on archaeological findings too, not just documents passed down, that this kingdom was to be divided to the Medes and the Persians. Either the the recordings I found, October 11th to 12th, or October 29th of 539 B.C. You know, I often can't even remember my mom and dad's birthday. Yeah, this date was passed down throughout history and recorded on walls and, and um, temple columns. Now note, this was only possible because God allowed it and deemed it to happen. The armies of the Medes, the Persians, could only conquer because Belshazzar and his kingdom were found lacking in spiritual and moral value. Do our lives show spiritual and moral value? Do our lives show the living God's impression upon us? Here's some final applications for you. You see, the king was more focused on himself instead of God. And because of this, his kingdom would fall apart. All worldly kingdoms will fall. And here's the truth for us today. We know the truth. And we must humble our hearts and live by the truth. 
This king knew the truth. Daniel recognized it. He said, you knew better. You knew the truth. You knew your history, and yet you continue to live for yourself. The one true God has already made it known to your grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar, and yet you did not learn. Are we learning? I mean, we've seen throughout history what what consequences there are to sin, what consequences there are to living how we want to live instead of how God wants us to live. We know the truth. We must humble our hearts and live by the truth. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives his grace to the humble. We need to humble ourselves and surrender before the God of all creation. It was too late for this king, this kingdom, but it's not too late for us today. All the world knows these sayings. Your days are numbered. See the writing on the wall. Haven't you ever heard that in movies and books in the world today? I've heard it. Your days are numbered. See the writing on the wall. You have been weighed and balanced and found wanting. The world knows these sayings, but they don't yield to the meaning for their lives. That was the problem with this king too. But we know the truth. We know what these sayings mean. Our days are numbered and every day we are being weighed. Just as God sees our sins, he will also confront our sins. Remember, there will be a day when your eyes are spent all, all day, all eternity with God in heaven or spend all your days, all eternity in hell for the consequences of sin. And be, at least for me, and I'm sure for you, I would rather bow down before him, praise him and worship him for all my days. As Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What are we going to do with our lives? Earthly kingdoms, worldly kingdoms fall, just like Babylon. But if your kingdom is not founded upon this world, but God's world, it will stand forever. Glorify him with your life. You see, there is a last night for every nation. There's a last night for every life. Everyone and everything will be held accountable to God. What are you going to be accounting for? Those who serve the Lord with bold faith and integrity, built upon Jesus as Lord and Savior, will live with him forever. It's imperative that we take advantage of the time that God has given with us to count our days and remember the wisdom that he's given us, that he's blessed us with. Whom will we serve? Whom will we glorify? Choosing to defy God's lead, God leads to destruction despite any rights, privileges, or means you may think you have. The king Belshazzar thought he had the means, the rights, the privileges to not only ignore the Medes, the Persians knocking at his doors, but to ignore God. And it's because of that, his kingdom would fall. God will destroy those who know the truth and have refused the truth. We know the truth and we must yield to the truth. And finally, do not drink away, party away your problems, face your problems. That's my final thought I want to leave you with today. Do not drink away, party away your problems, face your problems. How do we do that, you might say? Well, we start with God. 
faith in God. You need to have faith in God. You need to have prayer with God. And you need to have restoration with God. And as you have restoration by God, he fills your cup with all you need. He gives you the ability to to have a meal and to rest and relax in the presence of your enemies. He leads you through the valley of the shadow of death that you would not want, that you would not need. And then finally, we need to guard ourselves against defiant attitudes towards God by frequently examining our hearts by his holy word and talking to him in prayer and by serving him as servants with a servant's heart. Psalm 90 verse 12 reads, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Glorify God, not man. That was the king's problem. He only wanted to glorify himself, not God. Teach us to number our days, Lord, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that, we've given, that you've given us through your word. 